Hello and welcome to the second episode of Wilberforce in Conversation, where we bring you discussions with contributors to the Wilberforce Academy. I'm Paul Huxley, and last week I sat down with P. Andrew Sandlin, the Director of the Centre for Cultural Leadership. Unfortunately, we had a few problems with the recording due to a squeaky chair and some enthusiastic table tapping. Nevertheless, I think we spoke about some really important and interesting things. So please accept my apologies for the audio quality in places, and we'll try to avoid those problems in the future. So without further ado, here's our discussion. So today I'd like us to speak about culture. Yeah. Uh, the strapline for the Centre for Cultural Leadership uh, is transforming Christians to transform culture. So why don't we start off by defining what culture actually is? That's a good idea, Paul. It's a word that's commonly used today, but uh, often not defined. So it's sort of what we in America would call one of those wiggly words. It can mean sort of anything anybody wants it to mean. Uh, culture is uh, can be defined correctly in a couple of ways. I'd begin by saying it's essentially man's creative interaction with nature. Um, the theologian, American theologian John Frame says, creation is what God made and culture is what we make. So, um, for example, I would say, and uh, for a basic example, an apple is creation, but an apple pie uh, is culture. Uh, our hair is on the top of our heads, is uh, creation, but hair gel is culture. And of course, we can extend that out from everything to everything from uh, smartphones to the table at which we're recording this podcast uh, to thermonuclear warheads. Um, so culture can be good or bad, and that really uh, is a fundamental point for Christians. But before moving on, I think there is another definition which is equally accurate. It was articulated by Henry Van Til years ago. And that is that uh, culture is religion externalized. And you actually can detect that in the English word itself. C-U-L-T, your culture. We know when we hear the word cult, uh, it has about it the idea of a religion. And that's its uh, derivation and genealogy. Uh, we use the word cultivate, for instance, uh, cultivating the soil, cultivating friendships, and as the case may be. So essentially what culture is, is the uh, externalization of man's internal religious impulse, whether it's godly or ungodly. And this means that there can be either godly culture or ungodly culture or somewhere in between. So that sort of in a nutshell is, is a definition of culture. That's great. So just with that second one, um, there's a, there's a danger sometimes when you hear that phrase from, from Henry Van Til of uh, culture as religion externalized, um, that uh, the religion itself or, or a Christian faith is a purely internal kind of thing and that culture or, and cultural influence is an optional extra bit that some Christians tag on to the end um, that isn't really part of the same thing. Um, so, so it's really helpful, I think, there that you, you described it in that way, um, where you're talking about just the religious impulse and, and uh, you know, the, your actual standing with Christ and standing or your not standing with Christ yes. and, and, and your status there and how that works its way out in how you live. Yes. No, that's, I, I think the reason for the impoverished view of culture is that almost from the beginning, Christianity has been afflicted by a form of dualism. Um, and there are pronounced forms like the ancient Gnostic heresy, but even uh, if not in those 
intense forms, there was a tendency to to downplay uh, creation, particularly the human body, as being inferior. And the, the interior part of man, sometimes called the soul, that is what is to be saved, to be redeemed. Whereas the body is, uh, as someone wisely said, sort of the vehicle to cart around your soul. But that's not a biblical idea at all. The Hebrews understood, and the early Christians being influenced by the Hebrews, understood that that wasn't the case. So in the Bible, the notion that a, a faith, a legitimate faith, whether that of the Jews uh, of the Older Testament or Christians in the New Testament, could be limited to uh, the interior of man uh, is something that they would have found incomprehensible. And that's why in the Old Testament, there is law about loving God with all of one's heart, and yet there's law about food. Uh, there's law about loving your neighbor. There's the law, 10th commandment, about not coveting. And yet there's also the law about warfare and even about something perhaps as crude as our bodily functions. So the, the notion that the, the Christian faith or religion could be something merely internal is actually a peculiarly modern notion, uh, began largely in the Enlightenment, though the roots of it, like I said, are um, in ancient dualism. So the other point I would want to make about that, Paul, is it's, it's interesting. Uh, we might try to um, obscure religion and to limit it to the internal, but actually culture is an inescapable concept. So even when Christians internalize their faith, nonetheless, by the very nature of the case, they must act within culture. So every cultural act is in some sense a religious act, whether they think it is or not. The goal of Christians, of course, is to align all of their life, including the external cultural life, with the Word of God. Um, I often hear that Christianity is unique among religions in that it is more culturally flexible and that it can it can go across different cultures. Um, there aren't restrictive dietary codes, address codes, these kinds of things. It doesn't have rigid forms of music, maybe liturgy. Um, how do you react to that? No, that's true. That's, uh, that's, that's quite correct. I think one reason Christianity has been uh, so successful, first and fundamentally, because it is true, the power of the Spirit of God is at work, but also from the very beginning, uh, there was this a universalizing, multinational, multi-ethnic aspect of it. Of course, in the Old Testament, we have God's sort of beginning pilot project with his people Israel. He gave them a specific land and there was an ethnic element. Though even then, we have to remember, Paul, that any Gentile that wanted to could come and, as it were, knock on Moses or Joshua's tent door and say, I want to become a part of the people of God. And there were means by which they could do so. But with the coming of Christ, as was predicted even in the Old Testament itself, there's this globalization of the faith. Uh, and so this is why, and you'll forgive my saying so, there really in the Bible is not a place for the nationalization of churches. I know I appreciate greatly the Church of England. My son is an Anglican, conservative Anglican, but we often hear, you know, the uh, various uh, Eastern churches, the um, Eastern Orthodox churches, Bulgarian Orthodox church, and so on. And we sometimes hear of uh, tragically in the U.S., white congregations or black congregations, but there's actually, biblically, no basis for that at all. Uh, the Christian faith is a universalizing faith, and it can adapt itself to all sorts of cultures. So to, to say, to use the term Christian culture is not identical to 
Western, Northern European, and American culture, though aspects of it certainly have been, uh, it could as easily and has referred to Sub-Saharan African culture and certain aspects of Asian culture. And to me, that's a real uh, strength of, of, uh, of Christian culture and Christianity. That's great. So um, I can still eat Chinese food. I can still eat. I can still eat food from from places which haven't been so so touched by but the gospel. Paul, that's but... cultural appropriation. The left is <laughs> that's, that's, that's a whole other topic. Yes, we'll, yes. we'll save that one for another day. Right. Um, there's a there's a quote that's often misattributed to Martin Luther that says the Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on on the shoes but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. Um, Sometimes used to kind of suggest that really there's not much more to, to living out your life um, out in the world and producing culture beyond um, just doing a good job wherever you are. What, what, do you, what do you think of that? Good point. I think Luther's, uh, the statement attributed to Luther is one of those that is not necessarily incorrect, but is not entirely correct, as you indicated. Uh, some folks who disagree with our position will poke fun of us and say, oh, well, you, I'm sure you get your milk from a Christian cow or something like that. Um, they'll talk about music and so on and I, I, uh, different kinds of music and, and try to argue for a, a, a neutral zone. I think what's important to understand is because all of life is to be lived to the glory of God. For the Christian, everything can be done in a Christian way precisely because it is the way that's in line with the created reality. Now, what some people call neutrality, and as is attributed to Luther, what they're really arguing for is a shared reality of God's common grace. It is certainly true that uh, the individual who made this table may have been and likely was an unbeliever, but he was operating according to realistic theistic principles to do it. He couldn't operate on consistently atheistic principles and create this table. Now, he, he or she probably didn't know that. So that's all we're saying when we speak about a distinctive Christian view of things. It's in line with God's created reality. So in some cases, that's um, it's harder to tell what what a distinctively Christian thing might be. But in, in the case of, say, a movie or piece of artwork, that might might come out more obviously as, become, you know, at least to us, as mm -hmm. being based on a Christian worldview. Or yes, not. that's right. Some of us at Wilberforce, we were in the lunch line talking about that. I mean, uh, let's just take the case of art. You look at art almost everywhere, um, certainly in the West before... Oh, uh, 1850 or so, and there was a, a distinct realism, a di many, of course, different kinds of art for sure. And yes, there was this notion of the objectivity, um, even in the case of uh, the earlier medieval idealism, the idealized Mary, the idealized baby Jesus and so on. Nonetheless, there was a realism to it. And yet you come into the late 19th century and see the impressionism. And so there the subjectivism just slightly starts moving in. And so Monet begins to thinking, well, I'm not going to paint what's there, but my impression, my initial impression of what's there. Then, of course, we go to Expressionism and Dada and various other approaches, and we get to Picasso. And today, you, you can see art, and there's no real sense of objectivity. Well, once you lose the Christian faith, which does claim to be objective, realistic truth then obviously that's expressed in the culture. And if we had time, I could go into music the same. No one would take um, 
a song by the Rolling Stones, and I'm don't worry, I'm not just singling out the Rolling Stones, could be an American band too. No one would compare that music with, let's say, Bach or or Handel's or even someone later, Schubert, so on, because there are different philosophical, which is to say religious presuppositions at work. And that's true right across the board. I think it's possibly even more pronounced in sort of atonal music. Yes, um, atonal, that's right. And, and where you where the aim was to basically break down all the rules of yes music and, and that's and, the, and the modernist the musical mod the classical modernists they would actually say that that is my yeah. goal that yeah. is my goal yes and it didn't really work no did it no <laughs> i mean you really. don't have the top 40 stations or many of them playing it just it just doesn't work right um i mean it does work in very specific cir- circumstances like um in the back background of a horror mu- movie yes. you might have some kind of atonal yes xylophone or something going but on. there's a reason it's um, it's appropriate for that particular but, situation and again that brings us back to the the reality of god's creation as he's actually made it and yes. living in line with that yes. because as much as you try to to break those rules then it just it just ends up falling apart. It doesn't work. It doesn't um, satisfy in the same way as I use this language, Paul. We live in a God rigged universe. He sort of rigged the universe with his laws. So yes, we can break them, but we can't break them with impunity. We can't succeed in doing them. Now, we can spectacularly fail and cause a lot of damage. But and, and by the way, that's why I'm not really concerned about all the evil in the world succeeding. It is true that for a while evil can and has historically. But even taking the case of the universal flood, which God promised will never be repeated, well, all of this evil did not go on because it could not go on. In God's world he would not permit it. So how would you describe culture as it currently stands in Western Europe or America today I mean uh, what, what are its themes what um, you know if you if you compared culture today in the broad sense cul- or everything that human beings are doing in in the West let's say um, compared it with another group of people or another time you know what are the distinctives of, of culture today that's a delicious question Paul I'm a student of the history of ideas and really relate that to culture and we could probably have an entire podcast on that but there are several but i'm going to highlight one before i get to them certainly the existentialism uh of uh, not so much kickergaard but nietzsche and um sartre and heidegger that uh, man himself that um existence precedes essence and that we are here and we must make meaning of something um, no doubt uh, relativism, that there aren't absolute standards, um, the Darwinian notion that everything is evolving. But I must say a specific answer to that. I think the overriding influence is um, a pronounced romanticism, uh, the, the, the invention and reinvention of the self. Um, philosophers might call it the great inward turn. It kind of started in a way epistemologically with Kant. I won't, I can't go into that right now. <laughs> but uh, essentially, before that, and even in Enlightenment, there was in the ancient world, the medieval world, and early modern world, the understanding that there are objectively given realities. Uh, for the Hebrews and the Christians, of course, it was God created all things in the space of six days. His revelation is in nature, his revelation is in his word, preeminently in his son who came, objectively died, and rose again. Even in Enlightenment, which was a transitional phase, there was a stress on the objectivity of the world, the objectivity of human reason, objectivity of experience. Yes, they were elevated too high, but nonetheless, this universal objectivity. But with Romanticism came the notion that objectivity either is not actually real, it's an illusion, or if it is real, it's not that important. The important thing is the invention of the self. 
And as some have pointed out, we hear the term postmodernism today. Actually, postmodernism is in many ways just sort of a heightened romanticism. So I would say that today with um, the whole gender fluidity movement and the customization of everything, um, you ever notice uh, commercials on television and, and commercials you see are always wanting to customize everything for the individual. Have it your way, Burger King. Have it your way, Burger King. <laughs> and of course, the, the other one of uh, this is, I'm sure this is true in England is the U.S., is follow your heart wherever your heart leads you. And um, you may have remember, uh, you know, the movie uh, The Matrix. I do, yeah. <laughs> Counter-East. At the end, uh, I won't go into the details, of course, but he's in the phone booth and he's talking to those who are the machines leading the matrix. He says, there are no more rules because, you know, reality, I can invent my own reality. Well, in many ways, that is, I think, the biggest cultural commentary today. Uh, I was mentioning one of my talks, Paul, I think yesterday or, or day before. Some of you, our listeners, may have read about this American. It would have to be an American, right? A man who who became a woman, uh, sex change operation. Excuse me, they're not called that anymore. They're called gender affirmation surgeries. Who uh, became a woman. I mean, he didn't really, but he thought he did. But now that wasn't enough. He now must become a dragon. And I'm not joking. His, he's having his ear slowly and his uh, slowly excised and his face, parts of his face cut off and all sorts of tattooing. And he actually does. If you, you can look at, you can Google it and see called Dragon Man or something. Uh, it's not photoshopped. I've checked it. It's, this man is actually doing that. That is an extreme example of this, the reinvention of the self. Self, I can be whatever I want to be. Last thing I want to say about this, Paul, you see then, first, it's, it's an assault on God's written standards, his written word, but it leads to war on reality itself. Because see, man, uh, the, the being male and female, male and female body parts become a, a constricted and therefore we have to escape from these restrictions. And that, of course, is where transhumanism comes in. A man doesn't want to be a human anymore. So I think in a, a long answer to your very outstanding question, I think the leading and dominant overarching cultural influence today from the standpoint of ideas is this heightened romanticism, the romantic view of the self, that we, uh, how, how is it sometimes said, that the, that the world is a canvas on which each of us must paint his own reality. That is the big issue today, I think. But then reality eventually, <laughs> gravity happens. And exactly. That's, <laughs> gravity that's happens. And, you, you, like and I said, it comes crashing down. As one American once said, we're, after a while we have all these grand visions, but we're mugged by reality. Reality actually gets the last laugh, which is to say God gets the last laugh. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so your, um, your Center for Cultural, Cultural Leadership, um, it's about changing culture. It's not yeah. just about um, recognizing it, not just about critiquing it. That's right. So how as Christians do we go about challenging that heightened romanticism, um, the, these kinds of views? What steps can we take? Yes, great point. I mean, I, I think there are several. Uh, in, in that particular case, uh, one of them is in our own families and our own churches not to subtly buy into uh, the notion that uh, life is essentially about uh, our imposing our own, quote, values, a Nietzschean idea, by the way, uh, our own values, but in conforming to God's truth. Uh, by the way, this does not in any way undermine human creativity. It provides room for it. You're talking earlier about atonality. It's so if, if you talk to a very gifted musician who 
let's say who sits down on a piano, a Beethoven or whoever would sit down on a piano and say, he would say, oh, I'm so restricted here. You have to give me something more than these notes. No, the creativity comes in taking this limited range and the infinite possibilities of this range. Uh, so having Christians, believers, recognize that we stand within a created reality and actually doing things together to recognize that. I was preaching Sunday at a church in North London, Emmanuel, and I made the point, you know, the wonderful thing about church and uh, the liturgy is it's in our present culture, it's one place that all of, them, all of us come every Sunday and do everything the same. All of us have sort of customized playlists on our smartphones, most of us do. And so we don't have to listen to anybody else's music, we can listen to the music we wanna to listen to. But when you come to church on Sunday, you don't tell the pastor or the worship leader, well, while everyone else is singing, I'm going to put my earbuds in because I want to listen to my own music. The point of it is that we're doing all of this together. See, in that little way, that's recognizing that there is something given, something external to us, that it's authoritative. So teaching our children things like that, the, the reality, the unchangeableness of this, of God's created reality. I mean, the basic structure, which is unchangeable. But I would say in addition to that, it's necessary for Christians to be thinking through distinctively Christian ways to address issues. I mean, because of the rise of gender fluidity and homosexuality, it's important to think through the issues of how do Christians address biblical sexuality in a society in which we live within a, well, let's be honest, a sexual chaos. But not only that, we hear a lot in the U.S. and probably even here too about fake news. Well, what does the objectivity of the news mean? How how should a Christian who's a journalist uh, remain true to the Christian faith and yet be fair with other viewpoints and presenting them honestly? And the same is true of writing software. People say, well, I think that an unbeliever writes software the same way as a Christian. Well, to an extent, the shared reality is there, but the motivation and the desires and the ends for doing it are all different. And what's true of those things is true of a number of others. So what CCL does is attempt to influence Christians to think through all of these issues in a distinctively Christian way. It can be the homeschooling mom, it can be the software writer, it can be the pastor, it can be the automobile salesman, it can be the engineer, uh, it can be the person, the sanitary, the person that picks up garbage on the street if somebody says, well, that's not really Christian. No, but the biblical view, the Reformation view is we should do all to the glory of God. We should do all according to his standards. So starting where we are, Paul, our goal must be to bring, uh, the, the biblical language is bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So in those, and I can mention 10 others, but in those ways, I think Christians have to combat this sort of romanticized uh, culture we have today. Well, it's funny that you bring up this, the software point because um, I was talking to, um, the person who runs IT, a Christian concern, Chris, um, about, you know, is there a Christian approach to being a sysadmin, system, yes. systems admin? And he absolutely believes that there is because yes. you actually believe in the fullness, fallenness of man and that yes. it's not just that people might make mistakes with, with computers and, and these kind of things, but there might be people who are actively um, seeking yes. to, to cause problems. And that's not just people outside Russians who want to do no, things right. or whatever. That's right. Um, but also people inside, even yes. the people who you think that that's a great Christian person. You know, that's I, right. I don't think we've had any problems with that Christian concern, no. but no. Um, it's still to be aware that there is the fallenness uh, of of man still and um 
and we, we need to consider that when we're putting yeah. systems into place yeah. and that's even even more the case I think if you're thinking about well how do we put in how, put laws into place how do we how do we run yes. our government and our society in a broad sense because there is this um, uh, these two different views of everyone's basically good and it's society that oppresses them and, <laughs> and how one and how one <laughs> holds what one believes on that issue, Paul, is going to radically determine his political views. And this is why historically in England and the U.S., where there was a strongly, if not explicitly Christian, more explicitly Christian, by the way, in England than America, certainly implicitly Christian understanding of the fallenness of man or the def defects in human nature. And that's where you get in the, in the Anglo-American system these checks and balances in, um, in political systems. You don't get that. I mean, just read some of the writings of Stalin, as I have, or read Pol Pot, uh, or read Marx. Their, their utopianism leads them to such dramatically horrific consequences because they don't understand that the people creating the laws in society could be fallen people. Their view is, well, we know what a good society looks like, therefore we need to have virtuous people that want to produce that society to be in charge, to change all of these people to make the virtuous society, not recognizing the basic fallenness of everyone. So it leads to radically different consequences. And um, just going back to the changing culture point, um, so some people um, uh, in Christian circles particularly are, are talking about habits and liturgies as a particularly um powerful ways powerful way that we can reshape ourselves as christians um and and challenge culture in the long term what would you think of that or oh absolutely in fact i was just this morning at wilberforce i spoke about daniel and i was pointing out in daniel chapter 6 verse 10 i won't I don't have time to go into the details but it pointed out that daniel as was his custom would pray three times a day opening his windows praying to jerusalem as the jews in the old covenant would well i was pointing out that it's remarkable that in the modern church and particularly the modern evangelical church there is this notion that the more spontaneous an action is the more spiritual it is and if we have a, a printed liturgy or if we get up every morning and have a list of prayer and pray through it or or if we have written prayers um or if we go through a, a, a have a particular habit that somehow that is cold formalistic and it's not quote authentic uh, but that, that again, is a notion. That's Rousseau's notion. That's the romanticism, that all of the custom and all the culture is artificial. What's really true and good and authentic is in my heart. But that actually is false. The Bible says man's heart is deceitful. Have, above all things and desperately wicked, it needs salvation. And if we put in place certain structures, again, they also can be sinful. I'm not denying that structures can be. They but if we put in place godly structures, that will lead man little by little to godly habits, which is to say, holy habits do lead to holy habits, holy customs tend to lead to a holy to a godly Christian culture. And if we leave everything to spontaneity, then we're not recognizing the structured element of Christian culture. Christian culture in the past was structured, structured in different ways, perhaps in different societies, but nonetheless structured, which is to say the romantic unstructured life is really incompatible with Christian culture. I mean, I, some, I grew up in the Church of England and, um, and some of the phrases that were repeated over and over, you know, they, maybe they were a little bit rote at, at certain points in the way that I might say them, but now I'm so glad that I have those in my yes. head. So and, let's, let's, you know, I, I remember um, yeah. there's, there's a, the point, um, do not be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified. Fight valiantly yes. as a disciple of Christ against sin, the world and the devil and remain faithful to Christ yes. to the end of your life. Yes. Um, 
that was said at the, after after people were baptized. It's an indelible imprint on you. And yes. it just yes, that reminds me what my calling is as a Christian. Yes, um, as as someone who's been yeah. baptized. And here's a prime example. So you and I, I think Paul would both agree that there are serious problems in the Church of England today. And yet, and yet, despite all of that, it has what I like to call the. Um, the artifacts, the relics of the faith still there. We're uh, recording this in Oxford and everywhere we go, though the culture itself, though the the sort of the, the moving culture, the dynamic culture right now in Oxford is mostly quite depraved. Nonetheless, I would suggest the static culture, the architecture, that which is not changing is not totally, but to a large degree, still Christian. We're at a particular college that, and of course, almost all of, except the recent ones, we're started by Christians. We look around and we see all of the churches and you go in, even those that have given up, given into liberalism, yet to the extent that they have retained any historic liturgy, there you see the faith. So we should not, we should never devalue these artifacts and relics of Christianity because, and this is the final point I wanna make about that. When by God's grace and the spirit, we turn things around, we have these things already at hand. We don't have to reinvent them. They're already there. We're already there. We go to Oxford and Cambridge and places in London say, please return to the faith or something very similar, at least, the Orthodox faith for which this particular edifice was built. It's right there. The artifacts are right there. So these are extremely valuable in restoring Christian culture. And it can be incredibly freeing as well because you don't have to just, you know, it's, it's freeing from this idea that you have to create. You, you don't have, have to, to build creative. from the ground up. To, yes, that's um, right. You know, uh, just in the most simple things in terms of planning a schedule. Yeah. If you've got one, if you've got a, a, a structure for, let's say let's say for church, if you've got a structure and, and you've got some set prayers and these kind of things, um, they free you from having to come up with something That's right. yourself. And not everyone always feels like they're able to do that. Um, not everyone is, um, you know, at our, at our church, we often have a time of open prayer where people can... Yeah can spontaneously um, pray things, which is great, but not everyone else, everyone no. in the congregation feels able to do that. So it's helpful in our case, I think, to have some set prayers where people are, are joining in together and we express that. And there's a, there's a modern together. arrogance about that often too, isn't there, that we can do it better than... One thing I've noticed you may have seen is, and I'm not opposed to this necessarily in principle, but I'm noticing a number of weddings I go to, the bride and the groom said, well, we have to write our own vows. Well, I mean, there's nothing you know, sinful about that. But often I find out, I read the vows that they write and they're actually quite inferior to the historic vows, Protestant vows, let's say, in the church. They can be adjusted here and there. So, I mean, it's, it's always wise. I think it was Chesterton that said, uh, how did he say it? Before you move a fence, it's okay to move a fence, but find out why somebody put it there. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, yeah. and when we're talking about culture and the whole of society and, and, and rebuilding, changing uh, culture to be in line with the Bible, then absolutely we should be looking back yes, that's as right. well as forwards um, yes not reinventing the wheel but um but starting starting where we were and, and maybe correcting mistakes because there yes. clearly were mistakes that's right um but uh, but taking things forward from that thank you very much for yes. talking to us and um, where can people find more of your writings um where can we get this kind of input on on these kind of issues from you all right go right now to your web browser and look at Christian Culture, all written solidly is one word, christianculture.com. And I blog at docsandlin, D-O-C-S-A-N-D-L-I-N.com. Everything else you can find there. There are all sorts of books and articles and so on. And you can also send me an email there. You can access my email or I'm also on Facebook, send a Facebook message. 
Paul, thanks for the opportunity. Really great to have you. Please let me know if you have any thoughts or questions about what we've been talking about. Email me at info at christianconcern.com. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash ccfon. And please sign up to receive our news emails at christianconcern.com forward slash sign up. Those emails will also let you know when there are more discussions like this.